You are listening to Gospel Doctrine, the podcast that is 50% Sunday School, 50% Talk Radio, and 100% Awesome. Today's lesson is number 11, How Can I Do This Great Wickedness? The scriptures covered are Genesis 34, 37 through 39, so those four chapters, and today we'll be discussing the story of Joseph, the son of Jacob. And uh, you may remember, to give you a brief summary, Joseph is the favored son of Jacob who had 12 sons. And even though he's the 11th born, he is the birthright son. And some people think this is because he was the most righteous, other people because uh, his oldest son, Jacob's oldest son, Reuben, had sacrificed his birthright through immorality. And actually, this is almost, there are several things in this, uh, in these particular chapters that are almost right out of a Jerry Springer episode, because you just can't believe that they would really happen, uh, let alone to the children of a prophet. But Reuben, Jacob's oldest son, had an affair with one of Jacob's wives, uh, one of his handmaid wives, and therefore he lost his birthright. And so Jacob's decree was that Joseph would be the birthright son. And that the reason I bring that up is because sexual infidelity and immorality and sexual faithfulness are a major theme in these chapters. What happens to Joseph? First of all, Jacob gives him a gift, and we'll talk, we'll talk a lot more about Joseph next week and his spiritual significance in the history of Israel and really what he means to all of us. It's such an important lesson and such an important symbol. He is an absolute representative of Christ at all times, one of the most righteous people ever to live. At the same time, he's surrounded by, well, his brothers and his sister comes in contact with someone who have terrible morals. And so there are wonderful lessons to learn by the contrast there. First of all, Joseph, his brothers are super jealous, perhaps because he's so much younger. And they, they, several of Joseph's brothers had reasons to believe that they would have been, once Reuben lost his place, that they would have been the birthright brothers. First of all, Reuben himself was probably jealous of what he'd lost. And then Simeon was the next in line of Leah's sons. So he may have thought, well, the birthright is coming to me next. And Judah might have thought that he would have been next because Simeon and Levi could have been disqualified through unrighteousness of their own. And Dan, because his mother Bilhah was, uh, could have considered himself one of Leah's sons because that's the way that it worked because Dan's mother Bilhah was property of Rachel. Then he could have thought, well, I am the first actual son of Rachel, even though he didn't come from Rachel's womb. Gad, same thing. He was one of uh, the handmaid sons, but older and firstborn of his mother. So several of Joseph's brothers could have thought, well, I have the right to the birthright before Joseph does. And so therefore they all hated him. And to make matters worse, Jacob gave his son this symbol of his birthright, what is called in the scriptures, a coat of many colors. And he wore this coat on one occasion in particular when Jacob said to him, go check on your brothers. They're outside of Shechem. And Shechem is a city in eastern Israel today. Uh, It's part, actually, it's part of the Palestinian Authority today. 
and it's right between two mountains. It's right inside of a mountain pass that would lead into present-day Jordan. And so it was at the, the borders of the land of Canaan. And the brothers were there tending the flocks. And uh, I, every time I've, it, this is the first time I've researched the distance that he traveled. But every time I've learned it, uh, I thought, I figured they were just out in the fields for the day. But it turns out they were 45 miles away, roughly. And so this would have been a journey of, of at least a couple of days for uh, Joseph to go check on his brothers. And so they see him coming from a long way off, and they're a long way from their father. So they're not worried at all about getting caught. And they hatch up a plan initially to kill their brother. But Reuben, it says in the scriptures, he delivers Joseph out of their hands. Reuben, cooler heads prevail. And Reuben says, no, let's just get rid of him without killing him. So they put him into a pit to hold him in the meantime, and they take his coat away. And this coat, we'll, to- we'll talk more about his significance next week. But uh, an heirloom that may have had spiritual significance in the lineage of Adam. And it fell into their hands. They put blood on it, the blood of a beast, and they returned it to Jacob. And they sold Joseph into slavery, some passing slavers who were on their way to Egypt. So this is Joseph's situation. He goes from being the birthright son. His father, Jacob, is a wealthy man, and Jacob has been renamed Israel. So he's Israel becomes a mighty nation, as we all know. And uh, Joseph is the birthright son of this amazing nation come, springing up out of nowhere in the land of Canaan. And the next thing you know, he's sold into slavery in Egypt. And Joseph was about 17 years old when this happens. So Joseph ends up in the house of Potiphar, and we're going to do another Bible Hub exercise. Uh, And if you go to BibleHub.com, and at the top, choose Genesis chapter 37, verse 36. So what we learn about Potiphar is he's the captain of the guard. And when you get to this page on Bible Hub, you can pause and and come back if if you'd like to learn a little bit more about how to research the Hebrew meanings of a word. This is a little exercise or you can just listen and and skip it. But once you get onto that verse, the page corresponding to that verse in the middle of the navigation, there are some three letter letter abbreviations. And one of them is H-E-B for Hebrew. So you click on Hebrew and it shows you a translation of the verse from top to bottom, the Hebrew words first then, uh, the, or I should say, the romanization of the Hebrew words, then the Hebrew words, then the English, going vertically down. And the last word is ha-tab-bahim, which is of the guard. And if you click on that word, the romanization of that Hebrew word, then it takes you to a page corresponding to that word. And over on the right, the top of the right column, it says concordance entries Strong's Hebrew 2876. That's the number corresponding with this word. And if you click on that, then it takes you to the page that defines the word. So we scroll down a little bit and we learn that uh, the word that is translated as captain of the guard, of the guard, can mean also cook, and especially a cook who slaughters the food and brings it in. And it can also mean guardsman. Well, uh, so there are a few things that, there are a few positions, there are a few different ways to interpret the job of Potiphar. And one of those is he was chief of the butchers. 
and another was that he was actually captain of the guard. And some people have speculated that this means he was, this was an, an idiom, and he was captain of the executioners. He was the chief executioner for Egypt. In any case, it seems like he was a powerful man. And it doesn't take Joseph too long. Uh, he rises to the absolute top of all the servants in the household of Potiphar. And the implication is there are many people there. So it's an important position. It's an important position for Joseph and Potiphar has a lot of trust in him. And what it says is uh, Potiphar could see that the Lord was with him. And Joseph serves there for a time. And eventually the wife of Potiphar comes to Joseph and says, Joseph, lie with me. In other words, she tries to seduce him. And it says as she talked to him day by day. So this wasn't a one-time thing. Joseph refuses her and he keeps his distance from her. Uh, he is not interested in committing this sin with her. And he says to her, you're my master, your husband. He's, he's entrusted me with everything he has except you. So how am I going to do this great wickedness and sin against God? And refuses her absolutely and is totally above board. Nevertheless, he's a slave. He can't leave. And at one point he goes into the house and doesn't realize none of the men are around and then she's in there and she, you know, springs out of the darkness or I, I had just imagined that she was waiting for him and had set this up. In any case, uh, she says, now's the time. Hey, let's, we're all alone. And he sees what's going on and he leaves. She catches him by the cloak and he's in such a hurry to get out of there that he leaves his cloak behind. So she takes this cloak and she's humiliated and bears false witness against him. She calls in the, the men and says, uh, look, he tried to mock me. Or in other words, he tried to rape me. And uh, he has left his garment here. You see what happened. You can see the proof of it. And when Potiphar gets home, she tells him the same thing. It says Potiphar's wrath was kindled. So Joseph finds himself in prison. And we don't know... We know that Joseph, in the house of Potiphar, and then in prison, Joseph was 30 before he left prison. So that total time was 13 years. And we don't know how much of that was spent as a slave and how much in prison. But he probably now spends several years in prison. And Joseph, uh, I, I kind of presume a lot of people believe this, that the captain of the guard or the captain of the butchers, and especially the chief executioner, whatever was Potiphar's position, would have absolutely had an attempted rapist of his wife killed rather than imprisoned. And so his wrath, it does say his wrath was kindled and he puts Joseph in prison, but I kind of think he would have gone back within a day or two and said, yeah, you're going to see what happens to someone who disrespects my wife. I'm going to put you to death. And so what probably happened, in my opinion, is that he had some time to think about it and he's like, and he thinks to himself, well, what do I know about Joseph and what do I know about my wife? Uh, my wife, I can realize that she, you know, I've seen indications of, of unfaithfulness before and from Joseph, all I've ever seen is trustworthy behavior. And therefore I'm going to take this accusation with a grain of salt and uh, I'm not going to put him to death. Nevertheless, he's going to stay there in prison. So that's unfortunate for Joseph. He does nothing wrong. And in fact, he, he uses language that is, is reminiscent of la language that would later appear in the Book of Mormon. Um, 
you recall in the in King Benjamin's address, he says, when you're in the service of your fellow beings, you're only in the service of your God. And Joseph says, how can I do this great, great wickedness and sin against God? So conversely, if you if you're causing your fellow beings to sin and commit wickedness, you're only committing wickedness against God. So Joseph understood this, even though he left home and he had no more instruction after he was 17 and he'd been many years by himself, he'd been abandoned. He still cares so much about what God thinks. And this is a, such a stark contrast. So we, we, we learned a little bit about the actions of Reuben, but in these chapters, we also read about uh, first of all, Shechem, uh, one of the people that that when the Canaanites that surrounded the lands in which Jacob's family settled, and uh, Joseph's brothers had a sister named Dinah, and Shechem took Dinah and he liked her, and so he invited her over and he raped her, and then uh, he kept her at his house, and so it was, I mean an awful situation. And that's the wickedness that I referred to earlier of, of Levi and Simeon is they tricked Shechem and his family. They, under the guise of converting them, they tricked them into circumcising themselves. And while they're healing from this very intimate wound, then they go in there with a bunch of men and kill all of them. Now, uh, certainly those men deserved and rescue their sister, which was a good thing, but certainly those men deserve justice. But to do it under the cover of uh, conversion and especially to make a covenant like circumcision and then uh, use that to perform wickedness was an act of great evil. And so therefore that's what uh, I, I imagine that Jacob would have had words about this. We don't know what the reaction in the family was, but... Um, Jacob probably didn't consider it his place to discipline them, or maybe he did um, discipline them directly for having done this because they rescued his daughter. So it was an unfortunate and evil situation. So that's that's the wickedness of Shechem. And then we also have the wickedness of Judah. And Judah is the tribe, the the sons of Israel, the sons of Jacob. They all, each become a tribe later on as we'll learn. And Judah is one of the greatest tribes. And in fact, they each, when uh, the children of Israel eventually settled the land of Canaan and dominate it, and each of these tribes is given a particular part of that country. And almost all of the tribes were carried away captive by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, except for Judah. So today's Jews are almost entirely made up of the tribe of Judah. So uh, sometimes you'll hear uh, the Judas, the Judahites, or the people of Judah and the word Jews used interchangeably. Uh, but it's actually all the children of Israel are Jews. It's just that most of them, we don't know where they are or who they are because their seed has probably intermixed with all the people of the earth by now. And... Uh, in the prophecies of the last days, the Joseph Smith has made clear that the lost tribes will return. Some people think that that's a literal, that, well, we'll talk, we'll talk more about the lost tribes when, when we get to that point later this year, but, uh, that has a literal and a symbolic fulfillment. One of those fulfillments is by baptism. In any case, Judah becomes the father of a great nation. And, 
uh, he, nevertheless, he is a man of personal wickedness. Um, but it's through the tribe of Judah that Christ will come. So that's a, an interesting lesson. Uh, up until this point, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they all received the covenant that the Savior will come through their line. And J- Joseph is where that promise and the birthright split off. They're into two separate lines. So Joseph receives the birthright, but not the promise of this particular lineage of the Savior. And so we can see that that wasn't associated with righteousness because Judah is a man of personal wickedness. And he marries outside of the covenant. So it talks about his wife. He goes and and chooses an Adulamite. And she bears him three sons. And then he chooses a wife for his oldest son. But then his oldest son dies. And it even says that the man was wicked and the Lord slew him. Uh, and we don't know what form that took, or maybe it was uh, the opinion of the writer, and uh, you know God, in some sense, slew him because the man died of of whatever natural causes. Uh, and his brother also a wicked man, and so the Lord slays him. And the custom or the law at that time was that, or the expected behavior, let's put it that way, was that if your brother dies childless that you take his wife and raise up children in your brother's name and they will receive the inheritance of your brother and that way your brother's house, your brother's family line doesn't die with him. And this was considered a charitable thing to do. So it wasn't a wicked thing to do. It was the right thing to do. And um, Judah promises the widow of his two sons, he has one more son and he said, wait till my son grows up and then... Uh, you'll be his wife as well, and he'll raise up children unto your first husband. But he doesn't do it. And Judah lets uh, his younger son grow up and finds another wife for him. And she's bitter about this. And so she hears that he's going on a journey at one time, at one point and dresses up in what they call a harlot's costume and, and waits by the side of the road with her face covered. And she knows... Uh, anyway, Judah's traveling by and she draws him aside and and seduces him or, let's say, tempts him. And the interesting thing is she knows enough about Judah to believe that he would be, he would fall subject to such a ploy. And anybody knowing Joseph would know that he would never fall subject to such a ploy. My point is, um, in order to even hatch this plot, she had to know a lot about the personality of Judas. She had to know that he was a man of wickedness. Number one, that he had uh, refused to keep his oath to her. And number two, just the way that he lived his life and governed his affairs, you might say, uh, no pun intended, to be the man that would make this choice. Uh, Then an interesting thing happens. So she ends up becoming pregnant from this uh, dalliance. And when Judah finds out, he orders her death. And luckily for her, she uh, he didn't have any money with him at the time, so she keeps a signet ring. And he, he never knows who she is. Maybe she kept her face covered the whole time. He never realizes it's her during this whole encounter. And later when she becomes pregnant, she's kept his signet ring that he gave her as a promise of future payment. And when he comes back to find her, she's nowhere to be found. Nobody knows her. He never knows who she is. But then uh, later when, and her name is Tamar, 
When Tamar falls pregnant, Judah says, What's this? My son's widow is pregnant? She must be pregnant out of wedlock. She never married anyone. So let her be put to death. And then she produces the signet ring and said, It was you. Uh, and saves her own life in the process and shames him greatly. And uh, later, at, at the end of Jacob's life, Jacob gives a patriarchal blessing to all of his sons before he passes on. And all of these, all of these indiscretions get mentioned and they have a, a very dire effect or they have a very profound effect for some for good and some for bad on the spiritual future of each of his children. And this is, this is referred to, not mentioned, but referred to in Judah's blessing. So uh, each of them have made mistakes and, and all of these, and these are uh, mixed in with the story of Joseph refusing the advances of Potiphar's wife. And so we can see from, we can, we know uh, for a fact, even though Moses, the time of Moses is not yet, there are no Ten Commandments, there's no commandment written in the scriptures we have as yet that says thou shalt not commit adultery. But we know from Joseph's behavior, and we have other indications, but we know specifically from that, that sexual immorality, sex outside of marriage was immoral. Joseph said, how could I do this great wickedness? So it's not only immoral, but it's an evil. It's a great evil to break up a home, break up a family, to uh, run the risk of having children and, and all of the other attendant ills that go with sexual immorality. And yet it shows that his brothers and those surrounding his family, those are the people surrounding, the, those mores were extremely low. And nobody else, not nobody else, but few other people thought the way that Joseph did, and no one had the level of personal integrity that he did. And that's the title of the lesson, uh, How Can I Do This Great Wickedness? So that's a question that each of us can ask when we're presented with, uh, you know, we're separated, let's say, either physically or figuratively from home. In other words, we're in a place where we don't think anyone can see and we're presented with an opportunity to do evil. And what do we do? I mean, each of us has made a choice where we wish we hadn't. Uh, we wish we'd thought more about it, and we wish we'd been more personally righteous. But Joseph, the, the, the measure of his righteous, righteousness is that he didn't need another chance. He didn't need to repent of anything. He immediately made the right choice. Well, Joseph goes to prison. And there in prison, once again, the Lord is with him. And this is uh, a, a point I would like to make. The Probably the biggest question that anybody can ask of a believing person is, why do bad things happen to good people? And that's what we're going to talk about for the rest of our time. So Joseph goes to prison because he did something good. And in, in the case of Joseph, the bad thing happened to him because of Potiphar's wife lying about him. But you could ask yourself this question over all of the terrible things that have happened or that you've witnessed happen to other people, um, all the terrible things that have happened to you or to anyone you know. Why did this person's child die? Why was I in a diving accident at the age of 17 and became a quadriplegic? Why did I get cancer? Why did my loved one have to suffer so much? Why were they in an accident? Why did I lose a child? Uh, these are real, it's, 
this is a real question. These are real suffering events. They're events that cause real suffering. And so it's it's not to be taken lightly. lightly. It's not a question that I think, oh, this question has an easy answer. But it does have a simple answer. So let's talk about what that means. Why does God, if you believe in God, you have to be able to answer this question because at some point somebody's going to come to you and say, okay, Mr. Smarty Pants, if you think God is real, then how could these, why do children suffer? Why do, why do these terrible things happen to children around the world? Children are innocent. You've said it yourself. They shouldn't be baptized until they're eight because they don't yet understand. They and the atonement of Christ covers their sins. So why does God let them suffer? And that is, uh, okay, so if you can't answer that question, you're going to have a problem every time this comes up. And it's going to come up if you have discussions with anyone. And whether or not you're trying to convince someone else to believe in God, you also have to convince yourself. So it's worth thinking about, and it's worth getting really solid in your mind. Why? Why does God allow this? And why does God sometimes do it? Uh, we have to assume if God is in control of the world, you know, cancer is one of those things or any unforeseeable disease, you have to kind of think, well, the will of God was involved somewhere, whether he allowed it to happen or he caused it to happen. Uh, so I'll start this discussion with a story. And you may have heard of Viktor Frankl. He's the author of a book, among many others. He's a, the author of a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And he's famous because... He was a survivor of uh, a Nazi concentration camp. He was a Jewish survivor, and he was treated awfully, as were all Jewish survivors. He was narrowly spared the gas chamber. He lost his family in the concentration camps, and he came out of that experience after the war was over. He, he'd given himself up for dead, but as he was looking around him, and it's an interesting uh, thing that happened, he had a, the manuscript for his first book was on his person when he was captured and he arrives at the concentration camp hold, hoping that somehow he can uh, he can preserve this manuscript but his clothes are taken away and he finds it meaningful that the the prison clothes that he's given instead of his manuscript he's the clothes that are taken away have his manuscript in them he never sees it again but the prison clothes that he's issued tucked into a pocket is a copy of a Jewish prayer. And so he found great meaning in this for the years that he suffered. He realized that God had taken away his own strength, his own purpose, and given him the meaning of a prayer, pointed him to God rather than to his own strength. So Viktor Frankl has this experience, comes out of the concentration camp, and he starts a, a school of thought of, uh, of psychoanalysis called logotherapy. And without going into any details about that, he, he spends his life trying to help people and trying to cure them. And he has a friend who's a doctor. And this friend comes to him, and his, uh, his wife has died. So the, the friend's just in a terrible depression. He's unable to find anyone who can help. And finally, he comes to Dr. Frankel, and he just says, I, I, I can't figure out why my wife would have been taken away from me. I, I can't get over her death. I miss her so much. And Dr. Frankel asked him a question. He said, what would have happened if you had died first? 
how would that have been for her? And the guy thinks about it for a minute and says, well, no, that would have been awful for her. She, I can't imagine how she would have dealt with my passing. And so Dr. Frankel poses this idea. He says, what if the reason that you were spared and she was taken was so that you could, so that she could be spared the suffering of surviving you and the price for her to be spared that suffering, one of you had to die first. The price for that is that you have to be without her. And the man thought about it and he got up and left the office and his depression was cured. Now, the point of this story is that once he found the meaning of his suffering, then it was bearable. So the question isn't whether or not there's a God when you see suffering in the lives of good people. The question is, does that suffering have a meaning? And if you decide that it does, and this really, it it does come down to a decision. And we'll talk about that a little bit. If you decide that it does have meaning, the question is, what is the meaning? So the first decision we make is, does our suffering have any meaning? First of all, If you decide that there is a God, to believe in God, you have to believe that suffering has meaning. They're one and the same belief. If God loves you, and God is good, and God is all-powerful, that means that his hand is upon every event. Some events he allows to happen, and some events he causes to happen. But in every case, he could have, the things, even the things that he allows to happen, he could have avoided. If he's all-powerful, then with a wave of his hand, he could have made it happen some other way. And we've talked about the how important agency is to God on a previous episode, but let me state it again. There is nothing more important to God than our agency. So that's the first thing to talk about when you when you consider the question, why do bad things happen to good people? The first thing to consider is that man's agency was so important to God that he was willing to risk everything. He was willing to allow one-third of his children to escape the, the good influences of his plan, to fail in their first estate, and to never be born on the earth. He was willing, and he, we can presume that he knew that would happen, he was willing to risk that in order to guarantee us our agency. He was willing to allow the Savior, his most beloved son of all, to come to earth and suffer an infinite suffering. And we talked when we talked about Isaac and Abraham, the sacrifice of how Abraham was commanded to sacrifice Isaac, we learned how to imagine how that must have felt for God by, by having an example that was closer to our own experience, Abraham. By imagining what Abraham would have felt, we can get a little glimpse into what God the Father would have felt in, sac- in allowing his son to be sacrificed or in sacrificing his son. So God was willing to do all of those things to guarantee us our agency. That's how important our agency is. There is nothing more important. So the first fact we have to understand is that God is not going to spare us suffering by denying somebody his or her agency. In other words, no matter how faithful Joseph was, God was never going to step in and stop Potiphar's wife from lying about him. 
That was her choice, and God had to allow it to happen. And part of allowing it to happen was not stepping in immediately and saying, well, I'm going to let her lie, but then I'm going to spare Joseph the consequences. Because that is her choice, is to give Joseph Joseph these consequences. It might have been death. It might have been imprisonment. And if God takes away all bad consequences from all bad choices, then we don't really have agency. So that's one answer, and it explains some of the suffering in the world. And if you believe in God, it's not too hard to imagine that God can set all of these things right one day. That, that also is sort of the equivalent of a believing in God. And I've heard it phrased this way, to believe in God is to know that all the rules will be fair and that there will be wonderful surprises. And I'll say that again. To believe in God is to know that all the rules will be fair and that there will be wonderful surprises. So you believe that all of these injustices that are caused by the agency of others will be set right at one point. And Joseph believed that. He was able to remain faithful. He was able to believe in God and continue having a good attitude while he was in prison. But for all of us, we have to consider that if our suffering is caused by another person, that God intended for us to live in a world where these things were possible. Obviously, he had to have a way for these things to be made right. And we can't imagine... Let me put it another way. The, uh, the, the man whose wife died, he was given a very plausible idea as to what the meaning of his suffering was. But we can't always imagine what the meaning of everything we suffer is. So there are two questions. Does my suffering have a meaning? And what is that meaning? Does my suffering have a meaning is an easy question to answer. We just have to decide. And God has surrounded us with witnesses that he lives that he's real, that Jesus Christ lives, that he loves us. These witnesses are there if we choose to look at them and interpret them that, and interpret them in that way. But it's also possible to interpret them in the way that, oh, this, these are things that believers in God commonly fool themselves into thinking. For example, you know, God loves me, or there's a life after death. Of course you want to believe that. You don't want to believe that when you die, you stop existing. So people, because they don't want to be fooled, and they don't want to believe in something their whole life and then turn out to have been wrong, they choose to believe the worst case scenario, which is that there is no God. And uh, I've heard a lot of debates between people who believe in God and atheists. And it's a common claim from people who believe in God. Well, you, you're saying that there is no meaning to our life, to our existence. And the atheist, atheists counter by saying, no, I'm saying that our life is even more meaningful because this is all there is. Well, it's, it's a fundam- there's, a can- there's a chasm there that's unbridgeable. There's a gap in the, in the two modes of looking at the world that is totally unbridgeable. From my perspective, believing that there is no God, there is no soul, there's nothing, as- there's nothing to you aside from your material existence, meaning... There's nothing in me that is Mark other than my brain. There is nothing that makes me me other than the atoms that make up my brain. 
and the electrical impulses, the energy that inhabits those atoms. There is no soul. I am just matter and energy, and that's it. Then there really is no meaning. To me, that is an equivalent to believing in nothing. And nihilism is not the philosophy where you believe in nothing. It's the belief that nothing has meaning. And I, I, without going into all the philosophical arguments, I see atheism and nihilism to be totally equivalent. But not everyone sees it that way. This is a decision that you will make. You can look around you at the world. You can look at the scriptures. You can look at the number of times that you felt the Holy Ghost in your heart. And you can choose. And God gives you that choice by allowing you to not be convinced by the evidence. He gives you the choice. Do you believe that these point to the existence of God? Or do you believe that they don't? Do you believe that you're fooling yourself? And it comes down to a choice of what kind of world do you want to believe, want, want to live in? Is it worth it to you to risk being wrong about God and to deny yourself all of the hedonistic pleasures that you could have your whole life and to deny yourself the pleasure that's involved in lying and getting ahead and putting other people down and gossiping and eat, drink, and be merry? Is it worth denying yourself all of those things for your whole life in order to have the chance of a better life? Or would you rather not be, not feel stupid and get the chance to experience all of these pleasures and not one day find out that the wolves pull over your eyes? You'd rather not exist at the end of life. Almost no one is willing to admit that this distinction, this decision really is a choice. It's not something that you're convinced of against your will. You, one of these two opinions is going to appeal to you. And which religion you end up in is, you can think of it as a matter of coincidence, what country you were born in and who your family is and who your friends are and who you happen to meet on the street. Those things are largely the result of coincidence and it has a lot to do with where God put you in your life and what he had in mind for you. But what you choose to believe about the nature of matter and of of existence is a choice that you make. You decide whether your suffering has meaning. And then if your suffering has meaning, how do you learn what it is? And on this question, there really is nothing that can help. So I, I, I had this experience many times on my mission. If God is real, then why did I go through this experience, this particular experience? First of all, it's impossible to show someone else true empathy for something you haven't been through. You can try, but their suffering might be so much greater than anything you can fathom. All you can do is try to be empathetic and, you know, extend your love. But there's nothing you can say that will really help. And even the things that I've said so far in the podcast, this doesn't truly help because the person doesn't know the exact meaning of their suffering. So the choice is, Are you willing to believe, without knowing the exact meaning of your particular suffering, are you willing to believe that there is a meaning, even if you don't get to know it yet? One of the greatest evidences, or the greatest witnesses, rather, of Joseph Smith's prophetic calling, I believe, is the revelation that he received in 
Liberty Jail, and he'd been there for so long. And he prays to God, where is, your, where is the pavilion that covers your hiding place? How long will your arm be hidden? When will you come to the rescue of your saints? And finally he receives this response, which is so poetic and so beautiful, and yet gives him absolutely no idea when he'll be released. It says, all of your afflictions will be but a small moment, and if you endure it well, you will receive a crown of righteousness. You'll be lifted up on high. So God tells him that all of these things will work together for your good, but he doesn't say, I'm going to get you out of there, Joseph. So Joseph could have, he could have written down anything that would comfort himself or he could have made, you know, if he, if he wanted to record this revelation later, then he could have made some prediction that he already knew would come true, etc. But instead, what he said was, you don't get to know right now. What you get to do is to continue to suffer as long as my plan dictates. And my plan, in my opinion, speaking as God, my plan means my and your plan. In other words, we made the plan of our lives with God together. And we, uh, in many cases, perhaps not all, but in most cases, maybe, we looked at our lives and we said, here are the things that we're going to suffer. Here's what we're going to go through. And we picked the challenges that we would have, or at least the type of challenges that we would have. And uh, Elder Neil A. Maxwell described it as an intervention that a surgeon would make on a patient. We don't. We gave God the permission to make that intervention, and then we undergo anesthesia, which he was the analogy he used to illustrate the idea of the veil. So we're undergoing surgery right now, and the doctor doesn't have to wake us up and get our permission because we gave it before we had this anesthesia. We saw what would happen to us before we came through the veil, and here we are living in this life, and. It seems strange that without knowing the meaning of our sufferings, that that those sufferings could do us any good. So God's promise is all of these things will work together for your good. How did that work for Joseph? He's in prison. And after he'd been there at least two years, he rises. Once again, he rises to the top of the prison. So Joseph may have spent several years in prison. We know that the total time he spent with Potiphar and in prison was 13 years. He spent at least three years in prison because he spent two years before he interpreted these dreams and then another year after that. It may have been much more than three years, but it was at least three. Uh, And two of the prisoners have dreams, formerly Pharaoh's butcher and baker. So the, the, sorry, butler and baker. So the butler has the dream and he tells Joseph, they're both sad. And Joseph says, what's going on? Why are you too sad? The butler says, I had a dream where I see three vines and there's a, there's some grapes in there. And I press the grapes, put them into a cup and I give it to Pharaoh. And Joseph says, the three vines are three days. And in three days, you will once again be serving Pharaoh. So the baker says, oh, this is great. The dreams are getting good interpretations today. I'm going to tell my dream. Well, I have three baskets on my head, and uh, the birds from the sky come down, and they have the baskets have these baked meats for Pharaoh in them, and the birds come down and eat the baskets out of my 
bat or eat the meats out of my basket. And Joseph says, well, in your case, these uh, three baskets are three days. And then the Pharaoh will lift thy head from off thy body and the birds will eat your flesh. And if you know the story, you know that both of these dreams end up being true. And he tells the butler, he says, when you're coming to Pharaoh's house again, please tell him about me. Tell him I didn't do anything wrong. And I, and I was delivered a slave to Egypt. I didn't deserve that. And I don't deserve to be in prison. And the butler says, yes, yes, I will. And then they both get what Joseph predicted and the butler forgets Joseph. So once again, Joseph has an opportunity to curse God. God, why God am I undergoing this suffering that you, why am I undergoing this suffering that you have ordained for me when I haven't done anything wrong? Well, it, uh, a year later, Pharaoh has a dream that there are seven fat kine or seven fat cattle, seven lean cattle. And the seven fat cattle devour, sorry, the seven lean cattle devour the seven fat cattle. And then he has a similar dream about ears of corn. And seven skinny ears devour the seven fat ears. And when and Pharaoh is deeply t- troubled by this dream. And it's only then that the butler remembers that there's a man in prison who can interpret dreams. And they bring Joseph up and he gives Pharaoh the interpretation that there's going to be a, a famine. Well, this we'll talk a lot more about what happens with Joseph and Pharaoh next week. But for the purposes of this lesson, we're talking about what meaning there was to Joseph's suffering. And later on, Joseph was instrumental in saving so many people because he had the interpretation of this dream. There's going to be a famine. There's going to be seven good years where we can save up food for this famine and get ready for it. And then there's going to be seven years of famine where anyone who hasn't prepared is going to die. And the meaning of this particular part of Joseph's suffering was to save everyone. And that looking back on it is the only way you can know the meaning. There was no possible way he could have figured that out beforehand and said, well, I've got to go in prison so that I can interpret the butler, the Pharaoh's former chief butler's dream so that a year later he can remember that there's a man there that interprets dreams and call me in front of Pharaoh and then Pharaoh can tell me his dream, right? There, this would just be impossible for him to predict. Nevertheless, his suffering did have a meaning. It was very meaningful to him and to everyone who came in contact with him for the rest of his life. So Joseph would have been justified in deciding that God was looking out for him. But before that time, if he had given up, he also would have been justified in that choice. He would have been able to justify it to himself either way. So the question for you is, what choice are you going to make in your life? Are you going to decide that your life has meaning and that your suffering has meaning? Or are you going to decide that you'd rather, when it gets hard, that God probably doesn't know what he's doing? That you know better than God what is best for you. Now, maybe God has disappointed you at some point, meaning he's, he's inspired you to make a choice that didn't turn out the way you thought it would. This happened to Joseph as well. Joseph chose to obey his father's command and go out and check on his brothers, and he was sold into slavery. Joseph chose 
to resist the advances of Potiphar's wife, and he was sent to prison. Joseph chose to interpret the dreams of his fellow prisoners, and he was forgotten and left there. And at each point, he could have said, God, I did what you asked of me. I followed your inspira- the inspiration, and I followed your commandments, and here I am still suffering. And what you don't realize is, you're already a scr- any any time you're suffering, you're you've already given a meaning to what you're experiencing. You've decided to categorize it as suffering. And once you give meaning to something, you're presupposing that one thing is better than another thing. And as soon as you do that, this is sort of the philosophy behind the idea. This is the at least the tip of the iceberg. Once you've given meaning to something, you've admitted that you believe that there's a value system of good and evil. There's a spectrum. And if there's a spectrum of good and evil, there must be someone outside of you that's deciding what that means, what good is and what evil is. Once you've done all of that, you already know that God exists and that that he's real. I think it's worth it at this point to read a scripture in the book of Moses, chapter 6, verse 63. And this is Enoch telling the story of Adam to the people of his time. And uh, so he's quoting the words of Adam, or he's quoting the words of God unto Adam. And, and, and God says to Adam, And behold, all things have their likeness, and all things are created and made to bear record of me, both things which are temporal and things which are spiritual, things which are in the heavens above, things which are on the earth, things which are in the earth, and things which are under the earth, both above and beneath, all things bear record of me. So that's the idea that I'm talking about. Even when you suffer, that suffering, the fact that you see it as suffering, the fact that when you're not suffering, you don't have a struggle to believe in God. The struggle comes when you experience something that you perceive as difficult. Then that that should tell you right there that there's something outside of yourself that gives value to your experiences, either positive or negative. Another scripture, which is my favorite scripture, is Ether 12.27. I give unto men weakness that they may be humble. So we understand that there's a suffer that there's a reason for our suffering. And at least one of those reasons is that God wants us to be humble and seek after him. Because he says, if they will humble themselves before me and call upon my name, then I will make those weak things strong unto them. So that's God's promise to us, even though he's the one who gave us the weakness. So our weaknesses are part of our suffering, and weaknesses lead to a lot of our suffering. And we know right there we have one answer for what the meaning of that suffering is. Another uh, indication, another hint into what the meaning of our suffering might be is the scripture in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. Though he were a son, speaking of Christ, this is Paul to the Hebrews, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And this is one of the very few examples in the scriptures where we, where we read about Jesus changing or learning, improving. Obviously, Jesus didn't start out perfect as a baby, didn't start out knowing everything. So this describes the process that he went to to become who he became. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Jesus became who he became. 
because of suffering. And if he learned obedience by the things which he suffered, then he learned perfect and infinite obedience by infinite suffering. Isn't that interesting to think that God would allow his son to suffer infinitely? And yet, that's the only way that he could attain infinite obedience. So what does that mean for our own life? What it means is we place a value on not suffering. We place a value on being comfortable. We are willing to go to any lengths to provide ourselves with safety and with a cushion between us and things we don't like. But that is a trait that even a flatworm can learn. You can put a worm in a maze and put a little bit of sandpaper on one of the paths down the maze. And it doesn't take too long before that flatworm will refuse to go down that path and he can find the little food by going through the maze and going only in those paths that are comfortable. And you can teach that flatworm and then you can remove the sandpaper and that flatworm will still find the food. So in other words, it is a very natural man. It is a, it is a very biological need to avoid suffering. On the other hand, it is a very spiritual trait that you will bear your suffering well and you will find meaning in it and you will choose to believe in God even though things are not going the way you want them to go because you look at that and you see in it a witness of Christ. As God said, everything bears witness of me. And God has promised that all of these things will work together for your good. In my own life, I've had the experience of having God manifest himself to me. And I don't mean it in the sense that Joseph Smith had it happen, but I felt in a particular day in my life, on a particular experience, I felt the closeness of God. I felt like he was right there with me, and I felt his love, and I felt his concern, and I felt his presence. It was unmistakable. It was something that if I could duplicate it through a force of will, through a choice of my own, then I would never live in any other way. There would never be a moment when I didn't feel that feeling. Unfortunately for me, it only comes when, when it fits God's purposes for me. But it was an amazing, wonderful feeling. It's something I've never forgotten. And God gave me that experience so that I would know that he cares about the fact that I'm suffering. But I had to go through a lot of suffering before I called upon him with so much intensity that he was willing to grant me the answer to my prayers, which was this feeling of closeness, this testimony, if you will. And that suffering, that anguish that I felt that gave rise to that experience, it had a meaning. The suffering that I felt Every time in my life, it has a meaning. I may not always know what it is. And in fact, I'd be very surprised if it didn't have several purposes and several meanings. God is smart enough. He's so infinitely complex in his thoughts that he can plan for several different things at once. And many, many purposes can be accomplished by one small and simple thing. That's what Alma meant by that scripture, that small and simple things will bring great things to pass. So God will take these little experiences and these little sufferings that add up and he will truly craft of us great servants 
and faithful people and powerful witnesses of Christ, if we will allow it. This is the example of Joseph, is that you don't have to allow these experiences in life to bring you away from God. You make a good choice, you receive an inspiration and follow it, and things don't turn out the way you thought they would, you still have a choice to continue to believe in God and to wait upon the Lord. That was the lesson that he gave Joseph Smith. You've made a good choice, here you are in prison, and you have still have to wait. I'm not going to give you the, the revelation that you want, which is that tomorrow I'm going to open up the gates of the prison and you get to walk out. You get to stay until the time is fully accomplished that you're going to be in prison, and then you'll be released. But all of these things will work to your good. Are you willing to believe that God is good and that he is working all of these things for your good, that he has given you weakness to bring you unto him? Well, I, I testify you, to you that your suffering has a meaning. And I don't know what it is. And you may not ever get to know what it is. But it is there. If you decide to believe it, then you will unlock the blessings of God in your life. And you will experience those blessings for eternity. May we all learn this from the lesson of Joseph. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. As always, we welcome your questions and comments via email to gt at gospeltoctrine.com. May God bless you as you study the scriptures, and may he grant you all of your righteous desires. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music in this episode by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.